Israel is a land of diverse cultures, religions, foods, music and people. Join Benji Shulman for the next hour as he explores the devout and divine, the off the wall and outrageous and everything in between. Right here on 101.9 High FM. You're listening to 101.9 Chai FM. I'm Benji Shulman. This is the New Blue Review. Welcome to the program. Nice to have you on this Monday morning. The last one in February. Can you believe it? Before we already uh, one quarter into the year. Uh, excited to be with you as always on the program. And not only is it going to be a jam-packed program like it always is, it's also going to be uh, slightly special uh, because at the end of the show, or towards the end of the show, I'm going to be making a few announcements about... Uh, some of the future uh, future changes that are going to be taking place because uh, we've had some changes here on the team, uh, which is going to necessitate uh, some changes in the show itself. So uh, if you are a regular listener, make sure you are listening right till the end today so that you know what is coming up on your favorite current affairs and culture show. We're also going to be talking about a strip club in Tel Aviv, which is being turned into an impact hub, uh, which I thought is kind of interesting, uh, and maybe one or two other bits and pieces uh, in terms of uh, Israel and the, the world and the Jewish world that we live in. And if you want to be part of the show, please uh, do us a favor, do me a favor, do yourself a favor. You can telegram us on 61 1019 or you can SMS us on 34519. But after the break, we are going to be speaking to Jade Weiner. She is a, a law uh, a law person. She works in the law. She does legal stuff. Uh, and we're going to be talking. A lot of uh, students are looking at, at studying overseas, and she did a very interesting program in Oxford. So we're going to be talking about that. But before we do that, I'm going to abuse my microphone position for just just a moment. I don't normally do this, but I think it was important. Because today is my parents' 35th wedding anniversary. Uh, and in a, uh, a, a society of startups and breakups where really nothing uh, exists for very long at all, uh, they've been able to do something miraculous, which is uh, have uh, not just a loving marriage for 35 years, uh, but they've made it look absolutely effortless. Uh, and uh, it's not only an example uh, and uh, something rather formidable for for uh, us as kids, but uh, something to be very grateful for, uh, which I am. So if you see Lindy and Jeff uh, walking around today or for the next week, wish them muzzle tov. They deserve it. We'll be back with Jade just after the break. This is the New Blue Review with Benji Shulman. Now, as I said uh, before the break, we are in studio today. Uh, with Jade Wiener. She is a, a, a legal worker. She has a, a really impressive legal uh, CV with all sorts of top law firms and uh, NGOs. And uh, and she just completed a really interesting time abroad. And with the students looking at this as an option, uh, I just thought it would be a fascinating thing to bring her on and chat to her about it. Jade, thank you so much for joining us on the New Blue Review. Hi, Benj. Thanks for having me. It's good to see you since the last time, which was an incident of you beating me at Cards Against Humanity quite brutally. <laughs> well, yes, but that was last year, so uh, we, we don't like to talk about that. Uh, new Year, new things. Yeah. Um, so, Jade... First of all, just give us a sense, why, your, your legal career, why did you decide to become a lawyer? What is it that you wanted to do? So, Benj, I guess my family, my grandparents, um, and just living in post-apartheid South Africa always instilled in me a desire to try achieve justice. And uh, 
that's kind of what motivated me originally to, to go and study law. I ended up doing my articles at a commercial firm, um, banking and finance, which isn't exactly very me. Um, and I left thereafter and did quite a lot of community work, charity work, non-profits. Uh, I clerked for the Chief Justice of the Constitutional Court. I've worked for amazing organizations such as the Helen Sisman Foundation. Um, and it was always on my bucket list to go and do a master's overseas. So that's kind of how Oxford ended up happening. Uh, so just let's uh, quickly, uh, the, I mean, the Concord is an amazing place to do some some legal work. It, what are some of the memories you have of, of engaging with the Chief Justice? Because while you were there, there were some pretty big cases as well. But, you know, it was the middle of the Zuma era and all sorts of stuff like that. It was an incredible, incredible experience, other than the legal work, just being around such incredible human beings, both in their personal sense as well as in the profoundness of their legal greatness. Um, the, the justices there, uh, Edwin Cameron, um, all of them, but the chief justice himself, just the most remarkable man, the most humble man. He referred to his clerks as his children um, and was just so welcoming um his chambers and where we worked it, it was it was a home and a family and a, a real team environment with of course a lot of hard work involved uh, you you know you always if you if you've did not done by the way the tour of um the the concord and and uh, constitution hill and uh, the, the old fort, it's really worthwhile. For me, it's like one of the top attractions in Joburg to do. Uh, and they've got a great art gallery there as well. Uh, is it, uh, you know, you always think about these places as being all these halls of, of justice, but I imagine it's also just like sometimes just a working place. You have to find an office and a phone and just pitch up at work. Uh, you know, you have, you have to wear the proper clothes and all that kind of stuff. Lawyers wear Harry Potter outfits and all sorts of things. I'll talk about that when we get to Oxford, definitely. <laughs> but I think that's what's so great about the Constitutional Court is, yes, you working in an office but then you you walk out and you remind yourself and you walk into the court and the way the court is built the architecture it's all laid out very um very purposefully to represent transparency a democracy even footing between the people equality and that's that's really just ingrained in all the elements of the architecture in the court and as you say the art there is absolutely incredible (laughs) Okay, well, uh, that's, there we go. So that's, uh, yeah, something that you, that you can even go watch judgments, actually something I've done before. You can just go pitch up at the court and that's, uh, worth doing. You can see all the new, uh, clerks there, which is, uh, very, very interesting. Uh, alright, so let's talk about, uh, you decided, uh, so how did you choose Oxford of all places? I mean, there are other legal schools in the world. There's Harvard, there's, uh, Northwestern, there's plenty of places you can do law. Why, why Oxford? Other than the fact that it is obviously Oxford. It's absolutely, Ben. So I, I kind of applied everywhere and I did intend to go to the States and I got oh. into amazing schools in the States. Um, and I kind of applied to Oxford and Cambridge as backups, <laughs> to okay. be honest. All right. Well, if that's your backup, I suppose <laughs> that can work as well. I, um, I had my heart set in America and it was, was my dream since being very young and, um, what ended up happening is I got a fully funded offer for both Oxford and Cambridge. I got a full scholarship to go to um, both. So I had to choose. <laughs> okay. And not being um, very inclined to, to researching these kind of things, I went on a whim. I asked around people who hadn't even been to Oxford, didn't really do much research. And apparently what I got out of it was Oxford had a stronger Jewish community. So I was like, okay, so... 
I, I keep Shabbos, I keep kosher. I thought, okay, maybe that's, that's, that's a bit easier. But I thought, you know what? A master's in law is a master's in law, no matter where I get from all around the world. And this wasn't anything that's special until I got to Oxford and realized that I probably should have done better research. Okay, well, we're going to find more about the research just after the break. Uh, stay with us. You're going to need to hear this if you're going to do the same thing. This is the New Blue Review with Benji Shulman. Uh, we are talking today to Jade Wiener. She is a uh, legal adventurer uh, around the world. And if you have any questions, you ever thought about studying overseas, even uh, later in life, you can telegram us 0618951019 or you can SMS us on 34519. All right, Jade. So you uh, pitched up randomly, more or less, at Oxford. Uh, why should you have done more research? Well, Benj, what I didn't know is that what is an LLM anywhere else in the world is not an LLM at Oxford. So Oxford, their law masters is called a BCL, a Bachelor of Civil Law. And it works a bit differently. So I envisioned myself going to do a law masters, meeting people from all around the world, sitting in lectures, doing presentations, doing moot court, doing assignments, uh, group work. Um, not exactly. Essentially, how the BCL is structured is that there are no lectures. You choose four subjects out of uh, over 40 that they give you. Those are your t- subjects for the year. And each week you get a couple of thousand pages of prescribed reading. And then you can attend a discussion group to discuss the readings of that week with in, in incredible professors and facilitators. Um, Actually, Sandy Fredman, who is human rights queen, um, South African, uh, she, she taught me. So that was, that was quite amazing to have someone across the world, um, teaching, um, uh, international human rights law. And once you've chosen your subjects, you go to these discussion groups, uh, in the cold, in the rain, you walk there, you sit there, you try to keep up with what's going on. And at the end of nine months of reading and reading and reading or trying to read um, and avoiding freezing um, and living on an abundance of Nutella sandwiches, you then go and you write your exams. And your exams are three essays in three hours for each of your subject. And that is 100 percent of your degree. Wow. Okay. So, so you're saying in the rest of the world they do it the traditional system. It's only in Oxford where they have this like sort of read for your degree kind of approach. Exactly. And it's it's known. I didn't know this at the time, but it is known as the most prestigious law masters um, in the world. And when you get called up for graduation, you don't graduate with your degree. You graduate from your college. And um, a few colleges graduate on the same day. And the BCL is the degree that's called up first uh, before any other of the degrees that graduate, before any PhDs, which they call a DPhil, um, that's called up first. So it's it's only at the end you really realize what, what you've been through. Uh, just explain that, because I, th- I think a lot of people see kind of Oxford and it's like one thing. But the college system, I think, is interesting for people to know about how does that work. Absolutely. So the best way to kind of describe the college system is with a Harry Potter analogy. <laughs> okay. So I think most <laughs> things are best described with a Harry Potter analogy. Always, especially in Oxford. Um, so there are 38 different Oxford colleges, and your college is kind of your home base. The colleges are – they have – they're, they're big physical structures spotted around the city of Oxford, and there's kind of no one place where the, the Oxford University actually starts and no one place where it ends. Um, you've got 
things like the fudge factory across the road of college. And obviously the college is part of the University of Oxford and much to my dismay, the fudge factory is not. Um, but that's kind of how the city of Oxford works. And you will be assigned to one of these 38 colleges. You can live in your college. Your college will have a library. It will have a common room. It will have um, dining hall, obviously big, big Harry Potter thing um, where you'll have, 10 course fancy formal meals and you'll belong to your college and that's your home base but all the colleges are part of the university so the same way you're assigned a house in um, Harry Potter and all the houses are part of Hogwarts it kind of works the same in Oxford but there's not uh, you know if, you, if you're going to go to Wits or whatever there's kind of a sense of like everyone on campus and you're all kind of a Wits person and you might actually bump into other Wits people even if they do humanities and you're doing engineering or something it, it, it you, you kind of are cloistered away in, in terms of your subject, you don't necessarily bump into people that you, you know, in other parts of the university? So to a certain extent, Benjamin, I mean, the colleges, you don't study your degree through your college. Your college is made up of students from all different faculties. Okay. You study right. your degree through the faculty, Fine. which will okay. be another building somewhere in the city of Oxford. <laughs> and there are so many student forums, groups, um, anything from fencing to, I kid you not, a Quidditch team. Yeah, I wanted to <laughs> ask about that because I've heard about this whole Quidditch team. What, what, because... Sorry, I mean, Quidditch, you have to have a flying broom and a flying snitch. So how do you replicate that in a, in a land of actual gravity? Good question, Ben. No one flies. People do run around on brooms. And the snitch is a person who's dressed up in a sequin gold cape who runs around, who, who everyone else has to chase. Now, in the early days, before the rules of the game were set out quite well, um, the the snitch involved uh, actually just ran um, ran across the fields, caught a bus to the other side of Oxford, and they had to actually phone him to come back so they could end the game. Um, they couldn't end until they caught him, I guess. So did you watch any Quidditch games while you were there? I didn't binge. I didn't make the most of student life. Unfortunately, as glamorous as this all sounds and... The incredible opportunities that were at my fingertips. I, I spent most of my time in a room on, on the train tracks trying to read. Um, it was it was brutal. I mean, what is that like? You know, people who've gone through. I, I, I've done a master's where there was a lot of reading, and if you, you know, sometimes in university you, you, people rely on lectures or, or or they read the textbook and do the exam. That's kind of how we do it. Uh, what was it like suddenly being thrust into an environment which was very intense? Hardcore reading all the time. Bench, the entire environment was so intense. Um, I, I, the, the cohort of people also very intense. A lot of them were recent graduates. So a lot, a lot of them were younger than me. There were a few, few oldies, some my age, some older. Um, but just the constant pressure of trying to keep up with that week's reading. Um, it was quite a competitive degree. People weren't. Um, some people weren't as helpful as I would have expected. And it's just exactly not what we used to. I'm definitely a lecture person. I like to sit. I like to discuss. I like to write notes. And this is just very one-dimensional for me. Um, it wasn't exactly a situation that, that I personally thrived in, but made it through. Thank God. <laughs> and what about the weather? I mean, you were there for nine months. <sighs> Was there any sun? There was sun on the days when I was writing my exams. I walked to my exams in the sun, and I was like, what, what, what? now, now this comes out? So for nine months, it was just cloudy. And I, I came from the South African winter, right. um, essentially into autumn and winter. 
Um, yeah, the weather, the weather's not fun. I, I lived on a lot of hot chocolates, um, to keep me going. And apparently you, they even have like big bright lamps that, uh, you, yes. you, you f- to actually replicate the sun. Absolutely. You get happy lamps. Um, that they, they, they get brighter as you wake up in the morning. So instead of when the sun actually rises at 8.30 in the morning, it rises at the time when you wake up and a lot of vitamin D tablets. Wow. Highly recommend it. It's like a Teletubbies <laughs> episode. It's amazing. <laughs> okay. So, uh, so those were some of, uh, some of the challenges. Let's talk about the content of the course because, because sometimes human rights law gets a bit of a, Bit of a rough shake, you know. Um, people think about the United Nations. They think about some of the NGOs. Obviously, you can't have this conversation without discussing Israel. Uh, was how did you feel that the course sort of dealt with some of that stuff when you were working on it? So, how the course works is that you choose forty subjects. Uh, sorry, four subjects out of options of over over forty, <coughs> and yeah. you really choose your own track. So there isn't necessarily any. Specialization. I just chose the subjects I was interested in. Uh-huh. So I did comparative human rights, um, children, family, and the state, medical law and ethics, and comparative equality law. And it was really interesting because some of the cases we discussed, especially in equality, especially in human rights, um, South Africa is a very progressive socioeconomic rights, not only legislation, but some of the cases are really those fundamental cases that are used in international jurisprudence and discussion. So it was, it was, it was quite amazing. Um, we did uh, freedom of religion and we discussed um, the Prince case, which was the legalization of um, personal use of marijuana in your private space. And, and I was actually at, at the court for that case. So it, it was incredible, incredible to be halfway across the world and, and be in a lecture venue learning from students from all around the world, um, specifically South African contents. Wow. Okay. So that must have been uh, pretty. So, so are, are South Africans kind of like rock stars in 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 the human rights thing in, in, in Oxford, like, are you like, oh, wow, you were at the court and people are like, that's very cool. I'd like to think so. <laughs> but there are definitely many, many more, more impressive people than I in Oxford. <laughs> okay. So, so that, uh, that, that was, um, the content side. What, what about the Jewish life? Cause you said that was why you went to begin with. Uh, did you, did you, what did you do for Shabbat and what is it like? So Benjo, I often felt like I was just living Shabbat to Shabbat, like the week was just reading, stress, exhaustion, panic, and then I would turn my phone off and, and Shabbat would kind of just get me through. And the setup there is unbelievable. They've got a full-time Chabad that services the community and students. And then there's also in the UK what's called a Jewish chaplaincy service, which sounded a bit strange at first to me too. Um, but Oxford has amazing chaplains, um, a family, uh, uh, Tracy, Rav, Rav Tracy and Mecha, uh, Rav Michael and Tracy, and they do programs during the week. Every week there's um, a kosher dinner, there's lunch and learn, there's dine and discuss um, the whole time. And then there's also a permanent Jewish community, the Oxford Jewish um, congregation. That they there full time. People who live in Oxford visit the shul, and it was this incredibly warm community. And then the students, the JSOC, the Jewish Society, that's kind of where I had all my friends. And for Pesach, for Rosh Hashanah, I went to an amazing family in Leeds who, who adopted me, and it, it was just—it just gave me a base, a foundation, a grounding, inspiration to learn, and just strength to kind of get through. 
and good food. Obviously. And good food. Yeah, it sounds to be. It's interesting. You know, it's uh, everything that you were learning in, in secular law seemed to be something around read and learn, and everything Jewish seemed to be eat and learn. Eat and lunch and learn, down and discuss. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so you can see how Jewish law progressed. Now, now we understand a bit more about that. Uh, what about the the politics of Oxford? Uh, you know, again, you, you, you're in a human rights law course. There's, uh, the, you know, Israel's always a campus issue. Uh, there's lots of other social issues, I'm sure, going on. So what, what is that like, you know, compared to maybe other universities you may have visited? So I think Oxford is, it, it's just, it's an incredible place. You go there and, and you don't believe you, you're actually in a functioning city because it looks like a movie set. And, What's kind of visceral about being there is, is, is why everything is so picturesque and so exquisite. There's a lot of homelessness. And it's this, again, this juxtaposition, what we used to kind of in South Africa in these really affluent areas of having those with so much and those with, with nothing on your doorstep. And as a, as a general community, Oxford is very socially engaged. Students come, you see a lot of engagement with the homeless and with students and with members of the community. Um, so in terms of politics, I would say it's, it's, it's a quite a liberal, progressive um, community. Also in terms of um, the Jewish um, the Jewish perspectives too. They've got multiple different minions, orthodox, progressive, egal, um, anything you can imagine in terms of the Israel side. Um, I, I guess it's, yeah, it, it, there, there were a few incidents of, um, Israel involved uh, politics. Um, was this on your course or in the, in the, in like this the, the, was on the street. This the was street, me right. helping, um, a rabbi put up a sukkah and, Getting um, verbally abused um, for what I personally am doing to Palestinian children. Wow. Okay. Um, there's um, also a Middle East Center um, that was built at St. Anthony's College, and that's pretty one-sided. Um, but I was actually fortunate enough to go on an iTrek trip, and this was in March of last year, a group of politics, uh, international relations, as well as law students to go on a trip to Israel. We went to the West Bank, we went to Gaza, and I was actually the only Jewish student on the trip. Wow. So it was a really interesting experience to, to kind of see Israel through new eyes. So you're able to get into Gaza with this, with this trip, I imagine yes. from the Egyptian side. Um, no. You were getting through yes. to Karen. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, I, don't, I think I was just like a covert, <laughs> covert agent. Did, did no one know that you were Jewish on the trip? Um, the trip knew. I okay. don't think anyone at the border patrol <laughs> knew. Um, but, you know, you kind of keep your head down. Um, I did ask some provocative questions. We met with, I'm going to have forgotten his name. He was head of the Palestinian Asaya Barakat. Oh, uh, d- d- Jabi or Jabba, what is Something, his name? Yes, yeah. yes. Okay. Um, it, it was, yeah, it, it was eye-opening. I'll be diplomatic. How, how did you find the people on the trip that they, uh, how they reacted to all of this? Because I mean, if they weren't Jewish. I think they, it was really interesting for them. I think, uh, as we know, um, Israel is portrayed in the media often in one light only, and this was really the light that they were getting exposed to only. And for them to go and see with their own eyes, um, there was a lo- there was a big call to actually boycott the trip mm-hmm. um, before it actually went. And 
the people who did decide to go were kind of going against the grain of social pressure, against um, people telling them that what they were doing was, was absolutely wrong from a human rights perspective, from a legal perspective, et cetera, et cetera. And I think they, they just went and they, and they saw the vibrancy of Tel Aviv, of Jerusalem, of the holy sites. And um, there wasn't anyone I met who didn't fall in love with Israel to a certain degree. Mm. And, and ITREC, is it like a Jewish initiative or is it run through the, through the college? So ITREC is, um, it's, a, it's an American funded organization and, um, I'm not entirely sure. I don't, I don't think they, they, they say they don't have an agenda mm. of, um, promoting Israel. I think their, their impetus is really just to expose people to what is actually going in on, going on on the ground and giving them tools, um, and educational material to try and come to their own, to their own conclusion. But at least to not just be swayed by what they hear and what they see on, on media sources. We're talking to Jade Weiner today. She is a legal practitioner. Uh, in South Africa talking about her time uh, in Oxford and uh, other august institutions, uh, legally speaking. If you want to ask her any questions, 0618951019, that's our telegram number, or you can SMS us on 34519. Now, Jay, what about the logistics and the costs of, of the masters in general or a, a thing at Oxford? Because it's, it's something that people think about post-study, whatever, a lot, is... Uh, how did you, you know, how did you start to think about these sorts of things? So absolutely, Bench, good question. Um, I went quite late to do my master's. I only went to 29. So I had some savings. And when I was looking at U.S. versus U.K., the U.S. is a lot more expensive. Mm-hmm. I looked at, like, what student loans would cost. And then, as I mentioned earlier, I was very fortunate enough to get a full scholarship um, for Oxford and Cambridge. Um, so I didn't actually really have to worry that much about money. Do, does it said, cover, does it cover, like what does it cover? Get, so are you exactly. able to eat or, cause every, <laughs> even in, if you're just having a cup of tea and it's five pounds, then that's immediately, exactly. you know, quite, quite hectic. Exactly. I was, I wasn't living very well. Um, my parents and personal savings did contribute to a, to a better lifestyle. But mm-hmm. yeah, if you're living on that stipend in Oxford, it's one of the most expensive cities in the world. Interesting. So, I mean, I can give you numbers. My scholarship paid, I think, 1,070 pounds a month, which in South African rands, we think that's a fortune. You can easily live off that. Yeah. But then when you're living in a room um, on the train tracks, which is like 20 minutes out of the city center, and you, you've got cows on the one side, your bed shakes when the trains go past, and that's almost 700 pounds a month. Wow. It doesn't go very far. And that's <laughs> shared kitchen, um, tiny little room. How many other people were in this house? So it was, it was fixed student accommodation. Um, so it was just like... Essentially, apartment, tiny little apartments with communal kitchens. Wow! But then I did when when my scholarship ended. I decided to stay on in Oxford for a bit, um, and I obviously had no funding, so I became a tour guide. <laughs> okay, well, we're going to find out a little bit about that uh, just after the break. We're going to take a short break. We're speaking to Jade Weiner. This is the new Blue Review with Benji Shulman. Talking today to Jade Weiner about her experience at Oxford. Uh, and if you want to ask any questions, you can telegram us on 061-895-1019 or SMS us on 34519 on the new Blue Review. You were a tour guide. <laughs> I was, Benj. I didn't – and my brain was slightly broken after doing the BCL, and I knew I needed to earn money to stay in Oxford. 
and there's Terry walking past. She's here because she knows I have happy, happy hippos in my handbag. <laughs> That's good. Um, so, Ben, yeah, I became a tour guide. The day I finished exams, I went and I got the material. I studied it. And I was one of those green jackets, walk around, hi, come on my tour kind of people and please give me tips. That's so you, so, eyelids. So you literally <laughs> just did it. As, so there was no money involved in actually being paid. You literally just got whoever picked you up. Well, and yeah, you have you, you have shifts, and okay. you hope people come on the tour, and then you hope that they pay you because it's promoted as a free tour. So you stand okay. around re- wearing a jacket that says "free tour," <laughs> and then you have to con them into giving you tips, <laughs> which you then have to pay a certain a, por- a certain portion of to the company. Wow, that sounds so quite was, exploitative, was, actually. Yeah, it was fun. <laughs> I mean, did you make enough money to keep your body and soul together doing yeah, that? Yeah, Nutella sandwiches. Yeah. And in terms of living environments, uh, you asked me how many people I shared with. Well, this was a, a man who I met from at the Chabad was actually kind enough to rent out his room to me in his house. Um, the other rooms he rented to other students. And there was a point when I was sharing one bathroom with six people. Wow. And I've never, I've never had to share a bathroom with anyone. This is, this is very <laughs> rough for the, for the Santon Jade. <laughs> And, and, and what did your tour, did you, was it a tour around Oxford? Did you show a museum off? What was the, what was that all about? So it was the highlights tour bench. So we walked, um, and saw the, the best sites to see in Oxford, so up Broad Street. And then we also went into some of the colleges. Uh, they're just so many stories. If anyone has the opportunity to go, just go on a day tour and it's, it's spectacular. I mean, some of these stories, the history, um, a lot, there are a few Harry Potter film sites, of course. Um, and the museum's there. It's, it's, it's essentially the center of the universe. You don't know if you're walking there and, um, there's a talk by Martha Nussbaum that afternoon, or you can go to Conan O'Brien at the Oxford Union. Hillary Clinton's there erecting a statue. You know, you just, you just never know what you're going to run into day to day. And were you able to go to, like, like to, for example, if you want to go to an Oxford Union debate, is it something you have to book in advance? Or if you're an Oxford student, does that allow you to just kind Good of pitch Good question, up? Benj. So that's kind of also one of my love-hates about Oxford is while they promote accessibility and there are so many incredible opportunities, a lot of the time it is kind of elitist. So the Oxford Union, you have to be a member. You have to pay, I think it's like almost £400 for lifetime membership. Wow. And then you can go. If you're not a member, you can go with a member as like a plus one and then pay £10 for a talk. Interesting. Yeah. But you say by and large, you just had to sit and read books most of the time. Yes. Hence, I wanted to stay on and kind of explore Oxford. And the tour guiding kind of gave me the opportunity to actually go and learn about the places that I walk past every day and didn't really know anything about. Okay. And how long did you do that for? Um, a couple of months, and I came home in December, so, yeah, two months ago. Okay, beautiful. To, uh, to nice hot weather in Lodge. Uh, exactly. I, actually, I came back and it rained for a week. <laughs> and you were like, what? I was like, why? Why? <laughs> hey, if somebody is thinking about postgraduate study of some kind or, or going a live abroad, I mean, it, what, what would you suggest to people just starting the process in general? Like, how, how to not make any mistakes that you made. <laughs> exactly. I think I could write a book of what, what, what I've learned in hindsight. Um, I think just make sure that you, you want to go to a place, not because it's a place, not because it's Harvard, not because it's a name, but because the degree there actually suits what you want to do. And then find out also about the, the kind of ethos, the culture, what support systems are there in place, what kind of cultural activities will you get um, involved in there, and does this suit who you are, you know, like as a, as a not only an intellectual fit, but a personal fit. 
Okay, well, that's uh, a quite uh, good, robust advice. Um, do, do can people? Where can people find out more information or uh, just get a, a better sense of some of these some of these things if they are starting that kind of a journey? Um, Benj, I guess it's it's kind of specific. I know for for law, um, for the US um, for the US schools, you apply on. What was that thing called? I think it was like LSAC or something. You have to apply online, register each university separately, play, mm-hmm. pay application fee separately. I think it's quite specific. In terms of Oxford, everything is online. Um, and they're pretty good with responding. Um, also, anyone's welcome to contact me if you are inclined to risk your life at a BCL. <laughs> what's, what's your email address? Uh, jadewina at gmail.com. Well, there you go. Uh, Jade, thank you so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Very, very enlightening. And uh, welcome back to sunny South Africa. Thank you. Good to be here. Jade Wiener. Uh, We'll be back just after this. This is the New Blue Review with Benji Shulman. 101.9 High FM. Uh, Yeah. So as I promised, there is uh, an interesting thing happening with the strip club in Tel Aviv. Uh, if you've ever walked by the beach uh, in, in Tel Aviv, uh, if on the sort of main beachfront, you sort of come across, there's mostly just big buildings, but sort of stuck in between the two big buildings is this weird UFO-shaped uh, uh, kind of building uh, that, that kind of sits there awkwardly on the beachfront. Um, and for many years, this was a strip club in, in Tel Aviv. It had been established many years before. And, uh, and somehow, uh, the city had decided that they wanted to redevelop, uh, and, uh, start, uh, basically building a new, uh, and large building there, uh, in that area. And so they used some legal means to shut down the strip club prematurely. Uh, and that's also because of social pressure from, from activists in, uh, in Tel Aviv. And, uh, yeah, just basically, uh, they had wanted this thing shut down. They shut down a number of, of, of other, uh, tour clubs, uh, t- strip clubs, excuse me. And, uh, and once it was shut down, it has basically been derelict whilst people actually, uh, figure out what it is, uh, that they want to do with the place. And so a number of social activists got together and, uh, decided to, uh, do something with it. So they got permission. From, uh, from, from a, <clears throat> from the city, and they've decided to turn it into an impact hub where they are using the space to help improve the lives of people in Tel Aviv. Uh, so they recently took it over, they, they cleaned it up, uh, and have started working with it to, to sort of Make it more accessible to the people of the city. Uh, it used to be called uh, the the Pussy Clap Cat Club, uh, and it's now, as I said, an impact hub. And there's some interesting pictures if you go on Israel 21C. You can actually see how uh, how they've done it. And and so the first thing that they actually had to do uh, was uh, bring in uh, about 13 organisations. Uh, including graffiti artists, uh, desi- a, a designer making environmentally friendly flip slops, a pluralistic Jewish learning program, uh, and and a non-profit self-defense training center called El Halav. And uh, they said they sometimes have up to 1,500 people going through the former strip club uh, every uh, single uh, every single week, which is uh, you know probably not a bad uh, bad number. But uh, one of the things that they've been able to do with the with the place is 
is a look at uh, having a new chefs. They've been training uh, new chefs, and they actually had to come in and get funds donated uh, for materials, and they started restoring a kitchen in the basement and adding adjacent classrooms. And here what's going to happen is Kitchen Studio is going to train, uh, it's an organization like an NGO, it's going to train aspiring chefs from populations such as former prisoners, gambling addicts, and women at risk. And the main level uh, above will be used for larger events uh, and some sort of gallery space to have local uh, artists. The new design intends to preserve the building's history whilst also creating a positive outlook for the future. And, uh, yeah, I just thought it would be uh, it's just really interesting that uh, the space, which uh, used to be sort of a bit uh, dodgy, seems to have been uh, reorganized in a, in a, a more, uh, just a positive way. And I just thought that was a great way uh, to do, uh, you know, first thing in the morning on a Monday. So, yeah, that is uh, that. Is that. Um, yeah, that is that. So if you have a strip club somewhere and uh, and you're not sure what to do with it, um, uh, you know, we can uh, – well, there might be some solutions in, in Tel Aviv for you. Uh, we're going to take a very short break, uh, just uh, just just uh, just a quick break, uh, and, then, and then we'll be back just right after this. This is the New Blue Review with Benji Shulman. Sorry about that. I uh, just uh, wanted, needed to play that advert. Uh, and uh, make the announcement that I promised at the beginning of the show. So the first thing uh, that I wanted to announce was the fact that uh, we've been running this show, I don't know quite for how long now. Uh, I actually didn't have a proper start date, uh, but I've been working with Chai FM now pretty much since the station started uh, without uh, – I stopped for a couple of years. I did everything from the – there was a youth debate show, and I was uh, in as a correspondent at one point. Uh, but but on and off since the station started about 12 years ago. And at least it has to have been at least five years ago now. Uh, I went to Kathy and I said, look, we had an Israel show and I want to broaden out things a little bit. Um, and I know that <laughs> I know that uh, this must have been uh, the new Blue Review uh, because <clears throat> we, we were having discussions about uh, Donald Trump running for office. Uh, and, and the show had already been going for a while. So that must mean 2016, uh, but maybe 2015. So, so at least five years ago, we've been running the show. And when I, when I spoke to Kathy about changing the show, I said, look, you know, we still need some Israel stuff and that takes, um, guests and guests are hard to come by. And so what I need is uh, a producer because I can barely get out of bed in the morning, uh, organized and, and getting people, uh, requires organizing. And so she said, fine, you can uh, take one of our staff and, and she will help you, uh, although producing is not specifically her thing, she will assist you with that. And that person was Mandy Pikin. Uh, and she uh, she was my producer for the show. And she did a really great job. Uh, she was always phoning me. Uh, she, w- she would go and look for guests. She would have to hunt them down on the internet, uh, email them, work out times, look at my schedule, look at a new schedule, try and figure out when the guest could come. Sometimes guests wouldn't come, then she'd have to reschedule them. You have no idea what goes into the background of a, of a radio show so that, you know, I can sort of arrive on the, on the, 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 the microphone and, and ask a bunch of questions. 
and and really try and bring you guys the best uh, radio show that we can. And Mandy has been an integral part of that process. She's always uh, making sure that I'm uh, I know who's coming on, uh, who you know that that I'm, that I've planned all the shows, and and she's just for the last at least five years or however long we've been running this program, uh, she's just been the most uh, remarkable resource. And now she is going on to Greener Pastures. She's going to be doing something else. And uh, and we just wish her the best of luck and thank her for all of her service on our show. And uh, I really couldn't have hoped for uh, a more uh, dedicated um, producer than we had uh, in Mandy. So thank you, Mandy. Now, with that, um, you know, five years is a long time. And, and when you, when you lose a producer on a show, you often lose also their personality, uh, and their input when it, when it comes to this. So, uh, we'll be getting a new producer for the show, but, you know, uh, I feel like f- since five years ago, certainly since Donald Trump was elected, if that's what kind of stuff we were doing, that, that the world has changed. Uh, I've changed. Uh, I've had some changes in my own personal life, whatever it is. And, and I've really, really enjoyed bringing you the most amazing Jewish voices in the last five years. I mean, we've had incredible people come and talk on the show, whether it's authors, people who have done movies, we've had politicians, we've had diplomats, uh, we've had activists, we've had just ordinary people from the community telling their stories, and it's been really great. But I think that we need to, to tighten up things a little bit. We need to focus. The world is uh, changing. Uh, Israel is in a deadlock. Uh, the American elections are looking like they're going to be tight, and uh, whoever wins is going to uh, be shaping the world differently. South Africa is is going through a phase, and I think you know we were always a, a current affairs and culture show, and uh, and I think we need to tighten up and be more engaged about uh, what that means. So uh, with the new producer, uh, we're going to start working on that vision. Uh, we're going to be chatting to the sound controllers, to the production guys. Uh, we've spoken to Kathy. And, uh, but for the next few weeks, don't worry. Uh, it's uh, going to be the same show and uh, everything is going to be the uh, same as you remember it. But uh, keep a lookout and uh, keep, keep an ear uh, because we are going to be changing things up. We've got some new fresh ideas and, uh, you know, hopefully it's going to be interesting. Uh, and uh, and relevant for for us and our community brings us to the end of the show for this week. Um, hope you enjoyed it. I certainly did. Uh, thank you to Mandy for the last time for producing. Craig who pushes all the big red buttons. Lucy on the sound. And we'll be back next year, next week on the New Blue Review.